Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. And if you sign up, you get a bonus episode weekly of all the other stuff that doesn't fall in the movie category. So right now, I'm watching The Boys, Lovecraft Country. Um, and a couple other things, any new movies that I see or anything like that will be included in that roundup. And I want to take a quick moment to thank my top patrons and they are Chris Balga, Jeff Widman, Michael Cross, and Philip Barker. Thanks guys so much for keeping the lights on. Uh, we've got a website, a discord and a Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Um, as always, guys, uh, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate. That does help new listeners find us. Uh, I've got a new guest with me on the show today. I've got Eric Christofferson. Say hi, Eric. Hello. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. And since you're a new voice on the uh, podcast, can you introduce yourself just a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm Eric I live in Missouri here. I am a college professor. I teach calculus all day. It's a lot of fun. I enjoy Ooh, exciting. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but in addition to teaching calculus, uh, I am also the host of a local foreign film series here in the city that I live in. Oh, awesome. What's it called? Uh, it's just called the Trenton Foreign Film Series, Trenton being the town where it takes place. Nice. Can and, can people access that uh, online or anything like that? Well, it's it's still relatively new. We just started last okay. fall, and um, we got our spring session basically all wiped out, right? Obviously, and yeah. so we're starting here. We're back up in the fall, and it's it's kind of just a small thing. We we host it on um, the campus where I work. We don't host it at the local theater because. It's just easier to host it in like the big auditorium that we have where, you know, you got the, mm -hmm. the roll down screen and all the, you know, where the professor has to wear the microphone. So it's got all the the speakers around the side and we just host it there. And I don't know, it just works. We show up. Uh, I have a partner. Um, we introduce the film that we're talking about. Just give a few ideas about what to look for as we watch it. We watch the film and then we um, have a discussion afterwards. Man, I miss doing stuff like that so much. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I know, like, for you, you might not say you said you miss doing that. You live in, like, a big city, like, and you might not mm -hmm. think that that's that big of a deal. Like, you got foreign films and this type of discussion going on all the time. But, 
you know, I live in a town, we only have 30,000 people. So it's kind of a big deal where I'm from. That's cool. No, I think it's awesome, you know, and I'm so supportive. I know right now the way things are, you know, it's a, it's a difficult situation. Um, I say I miss that because, you know, nothing like that's happening right now unless it's online. So um, I wholeheartedly support that. And I think, you know, no matter what city you live in, whether it's big or small, you should be, you know, supporting the arts right now because they really need it. So, yeah, yeah I think it's great that you guys are and, doing uh, that. We created this as part of uh, with the Trenton Chamber of Commerce. Um, they created oh, a program called the Trenton Arts Alive, which was they were trying to do all kinds of arts programs like this film. And they were doing like music in the park and they wanted to like get the community theater back up and started. So it's all part of like together in this big program. Yeah, you know, I think in the conversation that we're having nationally, globally, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, businesses struggling like restaurants and, you know, some retail, but, you know, we got to think about the arts too, because they're so important. And I feel like they're sort of at the bottom of the list, you know, of, in the hierarchy of, of stuff that people are thinking about. So if you're passionate about the arts, you know, definitely look into what you can do to, to be supportive and be that support for your local art scene. So that's great that you guys are doing that. I'm, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I enjoy it. And uh, that's the whole point is just to have fun with it. Great. Well, um, Eric, uh, my my guest always picks the movie. So what movie did you choose to talk about today? I picked the 1932 um, French and German classic horror film Vampire. Yes. So it is the start of spooky season. Um, and, and generally every year around Halloween, I try to encourage my guests to pick horrors. <laughs> and so you picked Vampire, which is great. I had not seen this film. So this was my first time watching it. So a really good experience. But uh, before we go too much further, uh, let me read the description. And guys, if you're tuning in for the first time, please know that this is not spoiler free. So you might want to go watch this first. If you have HBO Max, you can actually watch it for free on there. Uh, but here is the description for Vampire. After Alan Gray, played by Julian West, rents a room near uh, Courtempierre, France, strange events unfold. An elderly man leaves a packet on Gray's table, and shadows that are seemingly alive lead him toward a castle. At a nearby manor, he witnesses the same man being murdered and gradually learns about the curse of the Vampire. As Gray faces the horrors of the castle, he attempts to save the victim's daughter, one of whom, Leon, played by Jan uh, Herrnco. <laughs> I'm not going to say that right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I did my best, guys. Uh, has fallen ill and after she's mysteriously bitten. Yeah, and that's the plot in a nutshell, along with my amazing pronunciation um that uh, is probably when... the longest plot description i've ever heard of this movie <laughs> talking about the plot is really talking about the plot is really not the point of this movie right 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 it's more about the look of the film about the atmosphere it creates about the the art of it and not so much the story yeah um, when did you first see this movie? So, uh, it came out in 1932, so definitely did not see it in the theaters. 
Yeah, unless you have a time machine we don't know about. Yeah, I want to say I saw it early on in 2011, right? I Mm -hmm. took a year off between college and grad school, and I spent that year off basically just watching movies. That's nice. Yeah, (laughs) it was nice. I watched probably 600 movies in that year. No joke, no exaggeration. And yeah, I saw it. I was just, I would pick a director and then watch a bunch of the movies from that same director. And eventually I made my way to Carl Dreyer. And this just was one of the films that was his. And first time I saw it, I fell in love with it. That's awesome. Well, I have to say I really enjoyed it. As I said before, this is my first time seeing it. I'm always amazed at, you know, you feel like you've seen everything and then someone asks about another movie and you're like, dang, I haven't seen that yet. So that's, you know, that's exciting for me. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier with all their Criterion Collection uh, movies on HBO Max right now, it made it really accessible uh, for me to check this out and so many others. Um I think the next thing that I want to do is run over a couple of quick facts that I had about the film. I feel like you're going to have a lot. You mentioned you had notes, which is good. Uh, But I'll mention like a couple of quick ones and then we'll kind of get to your facts as well. Um, I ha- the first one that I have is that for much of the cast, this was their only film appearance uh, since they were not professional actors. Uh Henriette Gerard, who played the vampire, was a French widow. Jan H., I'm going to call her because I am going to mispronounce that again, uh, who played the village doctor, was a Polish journalist, or him. Uh, Rena Mendel, who played Giselle, was an artist model. Even Julian West, uh, real name Baron Nicholas de Gunsberg, uh, who played Alan Gray, was a French-born member of a Russian nobility who agreed to finance the film in exchange for the leading part. So, you know, everyone's reactions are pretty, you know, they're not like super rehearsed. They're not classically trained. It's just like regular folks in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Alan Gray, um, you call them Baron Nicholas. Yeah, he was a very famous socialite and magazine editor. And he was actually inducted into the International Best Dressed Hall of Fame in the 1970s. Ooh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) He did look pretty posh. I did notice that. (laughs) He did. He was always wearing his nice suit. And then um, interesting fact about the, her name is, I'm I'm just going to say Sybil. Sybil Schmitz, who played Leon, the sister who gets infected. She was a Mm -hmm. German actress, and she um, continued to work in film in Germany during, um, the third reich the nazi era and after the third reich oh, fell wow. she actually got black blackballed blacklisted by the by german film studios and uh, eventually wow. she ended up she ended up committing suicide not long after that that's horrible it is pretty horrible was she in like propaganda films or what no but she was know, just what, what... she was just continuing to work in normal films that were made in germany during the time and apparently that didn't sit well with a lot of like the film production companies that you know were able to come back afterwards Mm, okay yeah wow that's tragic um one thought that i had watching this movie was you know the fact that it mentions that these people are not like trained actors um they looked more i don't know how to put this but they looked like more modern to me than like in a lot of american films like they seem to have like a lot less like stage makeup and things like that. Like they almost 
just look like fresh faces today. Do you agree? I can see what you mean by that, definitely. And I wonder if that comes from them not being quite as glamorous. You know, they're not they're not wearing all that makeup. They're not being as I mean, there's a lot of expression in the movie, but it's not the same. It's not the same as like silent film era actors. And so it kind of came across in some ways as like more natural to me. Yeah, I think when you watch silent films, oftentimes the actors are not really like they're not really speaking the dialogue that you would see on the title cards. Right. They're just kind of sometimes saying nonsense. And so they're really exaggerating <laughs> it up. And I definitely don't think that's the case here. It does feel more natural. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, when you think that silent film kind of came from the stage or like, you know, vaudeville and stuff to film and there's no sound, it's like understandable that people would be more expressive and thinking about people that are sitting far away on top of that. So, yeah, it just has like a completely different vibe. And it's just interesting when you watch something, you know, like this from the 30s, but it's not following the typical formula. So it comes across as more modern to us now. I definitely think that this this film, almost in a sense to me at some points, feels like a film that came out today that maybe is trying to look like it came out back in the day. Absolutely, because uh, I don't have this written down as a note, but I had read that, uh, you know, there are some grainy parts and like jumpy parts in the film and people have talked about that. But a lot of that was like they, those were choices that they included in the film part of giving it that like weird ethereal you know out there with dreamlike quality so yeah it does kind of because you can tell that it was intentional if you like know what to look for it does kind of seem like it's mimicking old movies instead of just you know an old movie that's damaged or something yeah and i don't know if this was this was going to be one of your trivia points but um you know as far as the look of the film um it has this like I'm not an expert on like filmmaking techniques by any by any stretch of the imagination, but it's shot in like this soft focus technique. And a lot mm -hmm. of people will will comment that they say it's out of focus, which is not correct. Right. It's the idea right. of so soft focus is that the edges are still sharp, but then the picture is is fuzzy. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, and that and that's intentional, like you yeah. said. It's it's meant to convey the an atmosphere and mood uh, that was pretty much, I think, invented by this movie. Yeah, and this the story is that the cinematographer accidentally exposed some film to to light before he was supposed to, and while watching oh, wow. the while watching the dailies, um, Kyle Dreyer said, "I actually like." the look of that so let's do that for the whole thing let's try and recreate it and he actually put like a layer of gauze over the lens to create that like foggy effect yeah and when you think about it, later it's things like that are used you know on actresses and actors that are like aging they make it a little bit fuzzy to make people look a little bit you know smoother like it's interesting how like they came up with that technique and then later it's used in different ways um but yeah this is kind of like thinking outside of the box instead of just filming a straightforward film thinking of it from like an artistic perspective too and um i did not have that written down so <laughs> appreciate that uh the last one the last quick fact that i had was just um 
the beginning of work on the film Vampire was at the end of the era of silent films. So much of the information in the film is transmitted in the old manner uh, through cards with captions, you'll notice in the movie, um, to study sound technology that was not well known to the French, Dreyer traveled to London where he met Danish writer Kristen Yule and together they worked on the script for Vampire. So, um, you know, I noticed that right away. Like I was like, oh, this is going to be a silent film because I was seeing a lot of title cards, but then people do have lines in the movie. And that was kind of like an afterthought, right? Like they filmed the whole thing as a silent film and then they decided to add the audio after that. Well, um, Kyle Dreyer's previous film before this, The Passion of Joan of Arc, which is absolutely fantastic, um, was a pure silent film. And he mm -hmm. decided that he wanted to make a talkie, right? His first okay. talkie film. And so he did. He traveled to London because French technology wasn't that good at the time. And um, I can just imagine that um, on set, while he's trying to make like a talkie, so film with actual dialogue he just gets frustrated throws his hands up in there and goes f this i'm making a silent film because <laughs> a lot of it does feel like um the dialogue is afterthought yes yeah and like the title cards just takes care of so much of like the exposition and background it, that must have been challenging to directors you know making that transition like realizing they don't have that anymore <laughs> like i'm not going to be able to just use a title card here how do i weave this into the story where it feels organic so i i can yeah instead of just and, having like one character dump some information on you in a monologue <laughs> right <laughs> yeah everyone's favorite <laughs> yeah so that's that's really interesting um one question i had i didn't write this down as a quick fact but one thought i had watching it was like so the plot um is extremely similar in some ways to Dracula. And it's no surprise that when you read about the film, uh, Dracula was extremely popular. That story was really popular on stage. And so that's why, you know, and I think that they, they even made a film and then this director was like, I could do that, but like my way. Um, and so this is sort of his interpretation. It's not the same plot, but it's like got some key elements that are similar, I think. Yeah, when Carl Dreyer traveled to um, England, London, the Dracula had, had just come out as a stage play right around that time, and it was very popular. And the movie Dracula with Bela Lugosi is actually based on mm -hmm. the play, not the book. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and so taking advantage of the popularity of the, of the play Dracula, that's what Kyle Dreyer decided I'm going to make, he already wanted to make a movie about supernatural things, but he finally decided I'll make it about vampires because Dracula is so popular right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that. It's like a different interpretation, although I don't think it was super well received. Right. I think after Dracula came out, it's like exciting. And that's like what people are used to. And this movie is more, it's slower paced. It's more, um, you know, supernatural and more uh, surreal. Um, and it's more about like the look that we've talked about and the atmosphere and everything like that. And I feel like audiences weren't, they didn't really get it when it came out. It's only in retrospect that it, you know, became so beloved. Yeah. The movie at its premiered in Germany first. Um, and it actually got booed like by the entire audience 
which caused <laughs> which caused our director to go back and edit the film, right? Like you don't oh. you, didn't, you didn't really have test audiences back then where you could test it out <laughs> and then edit it before you put your big premiere. So he cut out two scenes, which you know I think um, just reading the what the scenes look like that he cut out is probably a smart idea. And then uh, had its French premiere, which was better or more well received than its original German premiere, but still mm-hmm. not still not great. And then at its Austrian premiere, premiered in Vienna, Vienna after that. Allegedly, this is a story that I've heard. I don't know how true it is or if it's like some legend that people make up. Apparently, um, people demanded their money back after seeing this in Vienna. And uh, after being denied their money back, uh, a riot broke out, which police had to quell. (laughs) Wow, that is a serious reaction. I mean, I've been to some movies I didn't care for, but I've never rioted. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Pretty interesting. Wow. Well, you know, I think, isn't that kind of the mark of a great movie in some ways, like being that ahead of like the critics and the audience? Like that happens a lot with some of my favorite movies were like bombs at the box office. And then later they're like, like this movie in the Criterion collection. So I think that happens with all kinds of art is sometimes you see it's Mm -hmm. just not appreciated in its time and it takes, you know, time like however much time that may be if it takes 50 60 70 years 100 years like you see that all the time right and you know now fast forward to today i know that guillermo del toro uh cites this movie as like one of his biggest inspirations and he used some of the like the scenes in the movie the way that they're shot i think particularly the first scene um, he used like in Crimson Peak and stuff like that, but he was a pretty big fan. That's correct. I, I listened to that interview that he gave where he talked about how this this was a big influence on him. Yeah. 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 And I think you can feel that in his movies, although, you know, they're usually about monsters, which I guess this kind of is too, but it does feel like uh, the setting, the tone, the look is such a huge part. It's almost like a character. Um, in the film I think particularly in Crimson Peak the house is like a character um, which was kind of similar in some ways to this Um, so the next oh well actually let's talk a little bit about the director you mentioned that you're watching a lot of Carl Dreyer's stuff like can you tell me a little bit about that like what are some other films that you like and what do you like about that director well um the film he directed right before this, as I mentioned, The Passion of Joan of Arc, came out in 1928, is um, maybe the greatest silent film of all time and probably one of the greatest oh, films wow. of all time. It is it is phenomenal. Um, it's, uh, it's obviously it's black and white and it's silent um, and it's shot with like extreme close ups, like everything mm. is like an extreme close up. And our central character, uh, Maria Falconetti, it was the only film role she ever played in and it's widely regarded as one of the best acting performances ever and you just see this like anguished look on her face throughout the whole movie and it is really fantastic okay i need to check that out or you need to come back and talk about it (laughs) and then i guess the other big one that he did is called ordet which came out in 1955 um which is a film about like religion and losing your religion and how do you explain miracles and right how does how do you reconcile tragic events with god 
right? And it's like very wow. philosoph very philosophical. Um, but a lot of a lot of his work, Carl Dreyer's, is about like religion. That's a big theme throughout all of his work. And then another big theme in his work is like the struggle of women in society. He's a he's a male director mm. who who really is able to create these really good films about about women and their struggles. I know like today, if a man tried to make a film like that, they'd be like, how dare you try to make a film about women struggling in society? Yeah, well, I think it's different today because for so long it was only men making those movies. And so now there's like sort of a counter, you know, argument of like, women could tell these stories about women. And I think as the, the, the playing field becomes more level, I don't think that argument would be there anymore because it's like if there's enough people telling their own stories, then somebody telling a different perspective is fine, you know, but especially back when this was made, uh, there probably was not a lot of that. I know there were women making movies back then, but not quite the same level of uh, coverage. But yeah, I, I noticed that the uh, the female characters in the film um, have a lot to do and, you know, seem to be like predominant in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a fair point, is that now that there's more representation than before, ideas and opinions yeah. change. And and I guess the, the big thing about Carl Dreyer is that he didn't make very many movies because The Passion of Joan of Arc, which uh, was, critics liked it, but it was a box office failure financially. Mm-hmm. And then this movie was both a critical and financial failure at the time. He actually Ugh. suffered kind of a nervous breakdown after the back-to-back films didn't make money because his like production company went out of business, and Yikes. he didn't he didn't make another film until 1943, so eleven years later. I can't imagine what a huge disappointment that would be. I mean, to pour your heart and soul into something, and I think art can be very. I mean, you're very vulnerable. You're putting it all out there in a way. And so when people don't like it at all and then your company goes out of business, yeah. I mean, and it's you, you hear that story a lot, I think, in the film industry where, you know, one bad project can really derail your whole career. So that's that's unfortunate. It's like if maybe if this had come out at a different time, we would have gotten more movies out of him, you know? Yeah. And then he made after 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 1943 was his next movie after this. So 11 years. And then he didn't make another movie until 1955 and then didn't make another movie after that until 1964. Wow. I mean, he made it. He, he made a couple of short film. He made a couple of short films, right? But nothing feature length. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that's too bad, but at least we got some good work out of him. <laughs> yeah, yes, we did. Um, I think in this next section, normally sometimes we kind of weave in talking about the actors, but since, you know, for the most part, they're not like classically trained actors that have long careers. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of your favorite scenes from the movie? Yeah, let's do that. So I think if we just take it from the beginning, um, this opening scene of the movie, um, is basically, in my opinion, horror movie 101. Like, everything that happens in the first 10 minutes is like, you want to make a horror film? This is what you need to know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 
what happens? Our character, he wanders upon basically an empty hotel, right? How often do you see a character mm-hmm. come to an empty hotel? Right? I mean, this ho- yeah. this hotel has, like, creepy wallpaper. It's got, like, skeletons all over the place. Candle holders on mantles. It's like, why are there so many skeletons? Why is there creepy wallpaper? <laughs> And then, like, spooky. Yeah. And then he looks out the window, and there's just a random guy holding a scythe. Like, why is that yeah, guy I holding like, a scythe? <laughs> like, just foreboding, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know, like, the idea of, like, death and the Grim Reaper holding a scythe is, dates back hundreds of years, but this might be one of the first times we ever see that image on film. Like, I don't know oh, for that's certain. A good point. And it it's sort of it's subtle. It's you don't expect like subtle nods to things in older movies a lot of times. You know, so like it's not like seeing the guy with the scythe, he's not death, but he's invoking like that emotional reaction that we have to seeing that. And we're equating it with death. It's like, you know, giving us little hints of what's to come without directly coming out and saying it. Yeah. And then he walks away and he rings that bell and it's like, okay, <laughs> I'm coming for you. I'm letting you know this is the bell sounding. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, I don't think we see that a lot. So like, even for me, like when I was first watching it, um, actually like in the HBO max format, um, it, it shows as the cover of the movie that uh, the guy with the scythe, and so I was like, oh, I guess we're going to see that a lot. And then when you see the movie, you, you don't. And so I was kind of like, huh. And so it kind of took me a little bit to go, oh, you know what? This is like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Like letting me know something that's going to happen later, like foreshadowing. <laughs> Some people would call it like the memento mori, which is like the yeah. symbol of the impending death coming. Right, right, right. And it's it's clever. And there's a lot of that with the skeletons and just different, even just like sound and music and things like that. Like there's a lot, a lot of it is like leading up to the events of the film, but not, you know, directly through the narrative, but through other means. And so, um, like you said, that's, that's like horror 101, right? When you think about a horror movie, um, it's not just the straightforward plot that gets you to the scary stuff. It's all the stuff in between and things in the background. Yeah, that's true. And then as we continue in this first scene, though, like he gets to the hotel, he gets taken to his room. The The person that brings in there is like, good night. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> you always hear like, oh, have a nice night. Hopefully nothing bad happens. <laughs> yeah. And then he hears like a weird sound and he has to go investigate. There's always a weird sound that you have to investigate. Right, right. It always a, definitely a good idea to jump out of bed and go look at that right away. I wouldn't yeah, stay cowering like, in my bed at all. <laughs> he he looks up the stairs and like through like, I don't know if it's the attic or just like the upper floor. There's like this hunchback guy with a deformed face. And he's like, oh, yeah, that was like genuinely shit. chilling. I was like, ah. <laughs> he's like, holy shit. He runs back to his room. He closes the door. And then he comes back. He's like, maybe I should lock the door. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a good idea. Yeah. Like, um, 
me personally, I would rather walk through the woods alone at night with no flashlight than stay in this creepy hotel right here. I think like, so I'm really partial to movies that happened in like creepy hotels or, you know, I don't know, an empty hospital or something like that, because I'm right there with you. Like the woods don't really scare me the way that buildings do. And I'm not sure why, probably because of movies <laughs> or maybe because we're in buildings more often than the woods. And so it's just more unsettling. I don't know. But yeah, this house is creepy. Um, I don't think I would have checked into it. Um, I, I think I would have left. <laughs> and then and then it gets even worse like he gets in bed and then in the middle of the night he's woken up by like his locked door is opened and this random guy just walks into the room and stares at him and you see the big right. bug, bug-eyed expression that he has and he's like what is going on here <laughs> I was feeling the same way. I was like, okay, is this a ghost? Is this like a real person? Like, but I mean, he doesn't know. So, you know, as much as he does. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because right in the title card, right before that guy walks in, it says like, it's talking about how all, he's living in fear of all the things that haunt his sleep is like the last quote yeah. of that title card. And you're like, is this real or is this some kind of dream that he's having? Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, a really, like, chilling way to start this movie. For sure. It's, like, it catches you off guard. And you're kind of like, okay, well, I don't feel like I know the conventions of, of this film yet. And I don't know that we ever do. It's sort of the entire movie is sort of catching you off guard with, like, the different things that happen. And that's that's part of the fun, I think. Yeah. And then that guy leaves him a book. It says, open upon my death, which is even more creepy. Oh, yeah. Right, that's extra creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like you do you like, know don't you're... leave people weird, scary notes that they have to open at your death. Do it's you terrifying. know you're gonna die sometime soon? Are you expecting it to happen? Like, what is like what's right. going on like, here? I was like, he's not that old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I guess from there, like he gets out of bed and decides to go snoop around the town, and I'm like. That's the last thing I would want to do. I guess the reason he does that is because at the beginning of the film, they mentioned that he's really in love with, involved with the occult. Yeah, he's like and trying to so, study it. Yeah, so he just can't help but be like, like, that was really messed up and weird, but that's what I'm about. So I'm going to go all over town exploring that. Whereas you and I would be like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> but this is up his alley, you know? And I think... I like movies like that where the protagonist is like, I mean, it's you're asking yourself, like, why are you doing this? Don't do this. But it's like they've set up that the protagonist is not normal. And so he's that gives you a good excuse for him to kind of go along with everything. Right. Like for him to go ahead and get himself in these crazy situations. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded of that, that like it's a, I think it's a Geico commercial. It's like in horror movies, you make bad decisions. And then they're like, oh yeah, the like, one with the chainsaws. Yeah, hide behind the chainsaws, <laughs> or let's head for the cemetery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I've been trained by these movies. I know what to do, and it's not not go there. Just yeah. don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. So I think the next scene we lead into is where he like he gets out of bed and he goes to walk around this old like abandoned factory in town. 
And this oh, yeah. this scene fascinates me because we see all these shadows that like move without people. And I don't know how they film things like this. I honestly don't really want to know how they film things like this because it ruins the magic of it. Mm. But we see this like shadow that is moving along the walls and it, and it like walks backwards to like rejoin this guy that's just like sitting there on like a bench. Yeah. And then we see it like leads into this like a party where you see like shadows like literally couples they're like dancing but you only see the shadows there's actually no people there Ugh, creepy creepy <laughs> and and it's even creepier because like we have this classic horror movie score like this music in this movie is like what you think of when you think of a horror movie score right but then when you see these couples these shadows dancing on the wall this horror movie score stops and then this like upbeat fiddle starts playing in the middle of it. And then the fiddle yeah, will stop, like it'll unsettling. switch back and then it'll switch back and forth between these two things. And it's like really, really strange to hear this like switch back and forth between the two different types of music. Yeah. It's kind of disorienting, you know, because we're kind of trained to follow uh, music cues and, and they kind of help us, understand what we're supposed to feel in the moment but when they're like kind of clashing like that it's it, it just kind of gives you a feeling of like unease or like well what am i supposed to be thinking and it's also kind of dreamlike especially in a a silent film where all you have is right. those those music cues to go on and it's really the music that's trying to tell you the story not the dialogue and when the music is confusing to you and disoriented you really don't know what to feel Right, right. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in, in that scene, but that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like, it's interesting all the stuff that in in today's movies you kind of take for granted. Like, you would use that today, uh, but not necessarily in the 30s. So it, it has like a bigger impact because it's like one of the first to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. So I think... No, no. So I think maybe the the next scene that always really gets to me, um, and it's just a small little moment. It's not like a big scene that's that's built out, but we end up reaching the 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 house where the man that we saw leave the book earlier lives, and he's got his two daughters and his servants there, and the mm -hmm. one the one daughter is, um, she like gets out of bed and wanders off into the woods and they have to go looking for her. And we never right. actually, we never actually see her get bitten by the vampire. We just see the vampire standing over her, like out in the middle of the field. Yeah. So it's kind of like less is more in some ways. We don't have to actually see the act, but your mind kind of fills in the gaps, like what happened. And I, I, I don't know. I kind of like that a little bit more than just like a big gory, like fang bite, you know, because <laughs> it, it also makes the audience think like, well, what happened or did that really happen? Like it kind of adds a little to the, to the story. Yeah. And then they finally, they get her back into bed and, um, they don't get her back into bed. I think she's sitting in a chair, but anyway, she starts crying. Like, 
like you see this one little slow tear drop down the side of her face. And like she says, I want to die. I'm lost. I'm damned. And you like, I totally understand what you're feeling right there in that moment. Yeah, it's like, yeah, she she effectively communicates like what it's like to be converted uh, by these vampires. Um, because they they explain that a lot in the title cards too, don't they? Of like, yeah, you're you know, in- intermittently people and you're intermittently like filled with like this like desire to inf- to feed, but also at the same time you're repulsed by it. Right, um, and I think because like now we just have so many vampire stories i kind of like the ones that go back to sort of the source material so to speak where it's like a lot more about connected like to religion and morality you know i feel like the older stories have like more of that in them um almost to where you kind of view vampires a little bit differently than like twilight or something today yeah i think (laughs) like true blood you know i think religion um religion and vampirism are like intertwined like you can't really talk about one without the other like whenever you talk about vampires like oh you can hold a cross up to them or you can use your holy water you can quote scripture to them and Mm -hmm. it like it repels them or it harms them and you always see like and i think it even says it in one of these title cards as we're reading the book here that the punishment for for all of your vampirism is essentially a punishment and it's like eternal damnation for all like the bad things that you committed in life. Right. You're like, instead of, you know, it's eternal life, but it's more like eternal death. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like you're, you're sentenced to experiencing that forever. And then you have to like, like it says feed and try to draw other people into your damnation essentially in order to, to live. Mm hmm. Yeah. And and I think the point that I'm leading up to in this scene where she gets bitten and she's crying is that in like a split instant, she changes from crying and tears on her face to the most evil look I think I've ever seen in my life. She has like her yes. eyes get like big and wide and there's like bloodlust in them and like there's a malice and she has this evil ass smile on her face and i'm like (laughs) yeah she's telling a lot just through her expressions and and like you're saying it's a really good performance because essentially she's just sitting there looking around and yet she's able to convey like all these things at once yeah and i'm like if anybody ever looked at me like that i am running away (laughs) as fast as i can (laughs) because that person wants to murder me yeah and i think it it helps get across the point that the the being turned into a vampire is like a battle for your soul, which I feel like they always say, but it's sort of in some ways I think gets eclipsed by the vampire bite and like the spectacle of it. But in this instance, we're seeing it just from her vantage point. We didn't see the bite. We're just seeing her like emotional arc or whatever. And so it, it just seems more extreme and it seems to be more tied to, to you know like losing her soul her morality and stuff like that like you said where she becomes quote-unquote evil yeah and then we eventually we see her her just her bedridden before this this evil look where she's transforming and then eventually at the end we get to see her redemption where she says like her soul is free 
Yeah. We run in just a small role. We run through that whole gamut of emotions there. Right. And a lot of these scenes, it reminded me, I mean, because it's kind of inspired by or similar to, you know, Dracula with like Lucy and Nina and the things that they go through when they're sort of being wooed by Dracula, you know, that process is long. And so in this case too, it's like, it's not like a quick, you got bit and then suddenly you're out there biting people. It's like this long battle for the soul. Well, I think this movie tries to make the point of that is that multiple times um, it says the, the characters say she can't die at night. She can't die at night. And it's if she dies at night, that's when she's going to become a vampire. But if she can live and die in the morning, then maybe she won't turn into a vampire. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. And I don't know if I don't think we've gotten to this point yet, or maybe we have. But can you talk a little bit about, (laughs) I guess I again, this is my first time seeing it, but like the poison, because isn't part of this like she has to kill herself, essentially. And so, yeah, I think, go ahead. I think if you read, if when we read the book, when we're reading it through these title cards as our characters are reading it, it says something like anyone who commits suicide, um, like the, the gates of heaven are forever shut to them if they commit suicide. And I feel like that's right, something that's that like vampires, right? yeah, but like, and especially yeah. if you watch Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think that's kind of one of right. the points that it makes at the very beginning when um, um, Dracula's wife kills himself, kills herself at the beginning. It's like she yeah. committed suicide. Yeah, right. She's never going to heaven. And that's when he's like, oh, yeah. And then you know, <laughs> all hell breaks loose after that. But yeah, it's kind of like that's part of, again, this idea of the soul and morality. It's like, I guess in this telling, like she was bit and everything, but also she kind of has to like make a moral judgment that's evil that would forbid her from coming to heaven to like fully transition i guess i thought that was interesting yeah but i, I also think it's something of in order for the our, our, our already vampire to take full control over her if she commits suicide and dies at night then now i'll have control of her and she won't ever be able to like um disobey or turn on me or harm me Ah, uh, like her human self dies kind of mm-hmm and I guess she be- yeah. she becomes her maker. And in some vampire vampire stories, you see like you can never harm your maker. You have to obey your maker. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true too. I kept thinking, you know, well, they need to just throw this poison away. <laughs> <laughs> it's too tempting. It's right there. It's got the skull and crossbones. You know, just yeah. toss that away. <laughs> yeah. Well, the doctor bring the doctor brings it with him, right? And he was given it by our vampire early on in the movie, and so the doctor, oh, yeah, that's right. The doctor is in league with this vampire, and there was quite a long time where I actually thought that the doctor might be a vampire as well. Did you ever think that? Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I could see that because it, it definitely feels like our protagonist and the and these girls. Um, it's like they're not fully in on whatever's happening. <laughs> There's a lot being held, a lot of information that they don't have. And the doctor seems to have all of it. Like you said, he's like in league with the vampire. So yeah, I could totally see that. Like that could be like a different interpretation. Like, it, And the there, there was, there was one scene, even when the doctor showed up where our, our other sister, the younger sister 
um, she's like, why does the doctor only come at night? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot she does ask that. She's like, why does he only come at night? Hmm. Well, maybe also if he's the one that has the poison, he wants her to die at night. Yeah. So that could be part of it. But it could be he's a vampire. Yeah. And then, like, then he draws blood from our main character, right? But, and then after after we get our blood drawn, right, our main character essentially passes out, which leads us into probably the scene that will draw everyone's attention. And this is this burial scene, which is incredible to watch. Yeah. Oh, man. As when th- our character goes out into, like, the field and he sits down on this bench... And then, like, he splits in two, and it's like his soul is leaving his body. Like, yeah, that was crazy. How, it's like, what? how do you like? How do you film something like that? I'm sure somebody who works in film can say, "Well, it's not that difficult. You just do this, this, and this." I'm like, but back in 1932, when you didn't really have special effects, you had to do all that practically. Right? How do you? do something like that and then he's walking around he's translucent you can see through him after that right yeah that that scene is bizarre it's very bizarre (laughs) (laughs) it's creepy this whole movie is just creepy that's the overall general feel right and i i like again we keep saying like it's creepy almost like for creepy's sake it's not not everything is like explained or spelled out. You're just kind of going with it. Like, you know, it's, it's art. Mm-hmm. And then he wanders along a casket, his soul, his disembodied soul or whatever, like wanders along and finds a casket and inside the casket, he sees himself and like, Ugh. he's got the big bug eyes again that this actor just has down like perfect. Yeah. He's like very goth. <laughs> 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 it's almost tim burton-esque yeah <laughs> and then and then we switched to first person first person pov and we're inside the coffin as it's being closed on top of us but there's like a little window how many times have you seen that now <laughs> you know in movies yeah that, i mean have to think this movie this has got to be the first time that was ever done in a movie yeah people are probably like what i mean that's just it's so it's so macabre you know (laughs) like just not something you think of uh filming even like because the logic of it being like okay you're dead but you're aware of being buried like all of it is just it's weird it's surreal Uh and then and then right then as like the coffin closes on us the musical score stops and it goes completely silent and all you hear is like the natural sounds Mm -hmm. and then you start to hear this slow like crick 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 of the coffin being screwed shut which is even more creepy (laughs) yeah because now you're just like you have nothing to do but listen to like the sound of your doom coming in like slow motion almost yikes yeah yeah and uh, again i think you know some of the best horror it's it's not what you 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 use all the senses, not just like what you see, but what you hear and feel, and you know that it's so effective. Mm-hmm. 
and then all of a sudden the vampire comes and peers over the down at you through this little window almost like and like her <laughs> expression is just blank on her face but you can almost tell in her mind she's like you cannot defeat me i'm more powerful and more smart than you'll ever be and i will always um i will always win in the end yeah a good villain a good villain yep <laughs> A good villain who we see for like 30 seconds of the entire film. Right. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of like, I mean, it's kind of like the idea of death. You know, earlier we saw like the the um, the scythe and like images and feelings and moods and music and all that. So it's kind of like we only see her for a little bit, but she just like represents what everything's kind of been leading up to. Mm-hmm. And then as they carry this coffin like out of the factory and like through the town, you're still just looking up through it at the trees and you just hear like the bell tolls of the church like like this is it. This is the end. I'm not getting out of this. Yeah, I mean, that's just it's just so creepy, <laughs> like even now to think about. Yeah, I mean, how many times have we use the word creepy, but I, I really can't think of a better word than creepy for all of these there, images. Yeah, it, right. It's just a, a general sense of, of dread and foreboding. And it, it does it so well with just, um, again, like like you said, the plot isn't the important part. It's like how this movie is making you feel like the stuff that it's kind of invoking in you. Mm-hmm. yeah and and it all culminates in this this surreal burial scene right here mm-hmm. and i mean i guess i mean, yeah, i guess that's pretty much the end of the movie in terms of scenes um we i mean obviously this is this movie was gonna have a happy ending like i kind of knew that from the beginning we we kill the vampire like of course we do right at back in those days right the, the bad guy the bad guy <laughs> yeah. couldn't win back in those days Right, there were rules. <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, you say like we're at, we're kind of at the end. The I didn't mention earlier, but the runtime, it's like what is it like 114 minutes? Yeah, it's like an hour and 30 yeah, 100 an hour yeah. and 14 minutes, not 114 minutes. Yeah. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. You're yeah. right. An, yeah. an hour and 14, minutes. An hour and 14 but minutes. But I feel like a lot of like those classic horror movies from back in the 30s, whether it's Dracula or Frankenstein or The Invisible Man or The Mummy or The Wolfman, those are all only like 75, 80 minutes long. Agreed. And I think even today, a lot of good horror is only about an hour and a half. Like if you want to pick a genre that has like a shorter runtime, horror tends to. And um, I think sometimes it benefits greatly from having a shorter runtime. You don't need all that extra time to, to explain stuff the way you might with some other genres, I think. I think that's that's true. Yeah. One thing that I just wanted to point out is um, how different this vampire is in our movie here than what you traditionally see from vampires. Like, absolutely. Like, yeah. I agree. When you think of a vampire, you think of some strong and powerful creature that you're afraid of and they can run really fast or they can fly or they can lift, have super strength. And you're like really afraid mm-hmm. of what they, of what they look like and what they could do to you. But our vampire here is like a frail old woman who walks around with a cane. <laughs> right. And you're like, 
you look at her and you don't feel like you would be afraid of this person at all. Right, that's a good point. But everything that happens around her is truly terrifying. And you can tell that you probably should be afraid of her, even though it doesn't look like you should be afraid of her. Agreed. I think a lot of times, like you're saying, there's there's some hallmarks to most vampires. They're usually, like you said, strong, you know, invincible. They turn into bats, you know, all this stuff. Um, usually the stories are like, very sexual and a lot of the um, morality is around that. Whereas it doesn't feel like the case here. Um, It's not the same kind of vampire. Sexuality, I think is also inherent in the idea of vampirism. And yeah, it's like, it's, you know, you know, you see that a lot. I was going to say in, in every version of Dracula really, but like Bram Stoker's Dracula, the sex is like ratcheted up way high. In True Blood, obviously, the sex is, like, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's HBO. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, and I think, too, because a lot of times monsters are meant to, like, portray the worst parts of us, quote-unquote. And so, like, you know, maybe, like, Frankenstein, it's, like, anger or strength. And then, like, vampires, it's sort of, like, the sexuality uh, that's amoral or, you know, um, from that lens. And so they kind of... It, it usually goes along with that. And it I think a lot of that probably does come from Dracula specifically. Like, I mean, the, the movie certainly is ratcheted up a lot, but it's even in the book a little bit. And, and it's in a lot of interpretations, but not so much in this one. Um, but I, I like this because it's just like a different, it's under a different lens. Like the damnation doesn't come from that. It just comes from, you know, I guess in this case, killing yourself or uh, going over to the dark side. Yeah. you know emotionally not 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 forced to in the same way yeah. as as we read in the in the little manual in the title cards it talks about our vampire how she was like a monster in human form while she was alive and she died an unrepentant mm-hmm. soul and she was such a terrible person that the church refused her the last sacraments and like those are oh, those yeah, are the things right. that she did wrong in life to warrant this eternal damnation mhm yeah, yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> um, did you have anything else that you wanted to to point out about the movie? Um, I guess maybe one more thing about the look of the movie is that Oh yeah, go for it. The movie takes place all at night. Um, and it's over the course right. of like one one night. And if you look at modern modern cinema, whether it's in movies or on TV, when something takes place at night, they like to shoot it at night and they like to do low lighting to like let you know, hey, this is taking place at night. And I feel like sometimes right. people have gone a little overboard. I'm looking at you, Game of Thrones, in that last season. <laughs> to where people can't I, see. Yeah, I don't even know what the hell. I can't see anything. <laughs> but um, this movie, even though it takes place at night, it was all shot during the day. Like every single scene in the movie right. was shot during the day. So we're looking at it and we see light. And the only way we can even tell that it's happening at night is characters are always lighting around candles and carrying lanterns around with them. And there's like oh, this weird contrast between seeing light, but knowing that it takes place in darkness and that helps create to this really weird feel of the film. Right. It kind of reminds me of like 
when I first saw, I, I think it was Nosferatu, and there's like a scene where he's like getting away in a canoe or whatever, or a boat. And I remember thinking like, it feels so weird that this is happening during the day. And then it was, I was, it was in a film class and they explained to us like, no, this is at night, <laughs> but it's just that they couldn't film at night back then, yeah. you know? And so, um, and so that does add like an atmosphere to it under a modern lens that, that we don't have today. Like you said, we rely on, if it's a horror movie, we turn all our lights off in our house and we watch it in darkness yeah. so that we don't compete with what's on screen. Mm -hmm. That is, that is yeah. what they do. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I guess this brings me to my last couple of questions for you. Uh, number one, why do you, if you, if you could summarize, why do you love this movie so much? And why do you think you've seen it so many times? Well, what I love about just film in general is, the art of filmmaking. And I think sometimes when, mm -hmm. when we talk about, when you say an art movie, you get this picture of like pretentious hipsters sitting in their coffee shops, trying to try <laughs> to sound smart. Right. Right. It's like, you're almost scared to use that word. I, I totally hear you. But <laughs> this movie, this movie is a work of art. Like film is an art form. And it is all, all movies are, art really but we we forget that and like you said there's like a weird negative connotation to it when there really shouldn't be and and truly great cinema happens when you tell a story that you can only tell as a movie and i feel like the yeah, good point. the what the director is trying to convey to us as an audience can't be achieved through any other medium other than film and mm, to me, that is just fascinating when I watch this movie. Yeah, I, I love that answer. That's that's awesome. That's totally true. Um, what's your elevator pitch to someone that hasn't seen uh, Vampire yet? How, how do you pitch this movie to somebody? I would say that. Do you like scary movies? Yes. If the answer is yes, watch this movie. It's terrifying. If your answer is if you're. If your answer is no, great. Watch this movie. It's really more psychological than scary. <laughs> yeah, it could go either way for sure. Yeah. Um, and and I think if you appreciate good movies, you you're, you've got to watch something like this because it just influenced so many movies in the future. Uh huh. You know, um, and so many great directors that we love today uh, look back on on films like this, and so it's it's important to see. And and it's really great that um. It's more about implied terror and implied horror than it is out in your face. So much today, our directors rely on blood and gore to try and scare you when, like, your mind can really come up with scarier things than any, like, than anything you can see on film. Yeah, I think my favorite directors are very sparing with violence or it's implied because I think you can be really effective with it, like you're saying, without actually showing it to you. And sometimes when it's shown too much, it's just gratuitous. Mm -hmm. And you almost wonder, like, are they able to get this message across without showing us a bunch of violence or 
things that just look frightening. Like that seems easier to do to me than to do something like this, where you're being made to feel a certain way, guided by what the movie's doing and not just like, look at the scary vampire, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, and I do think that's why, you know, today sometimes there's, you'll meet people that like do, they say, I don't watch horror. I don't like any of it. And I think it's because we kind of put all of it under one umbrella when really it's it's more of like a spectrum and there's different types of horror. And I tend to like horror like this more. Yeah. If, if you go back and watch the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's truly scary, but it's not very violent. Right. Almost all of like the mm -hmm. deaths happen just off screen. Mm -hmm. Or if you watch like Alien, which absolutely is a horror movie. Um, it's a haunted it's a haunted house yeah. in space. You don't ever actually see yeah. the alien really until like the very end. And it's just what is this creature lurking in the corners that's picking off this crew one by one? Right. And the tone totally changes when if you compare alien to aliens, right? Because in aliens, it's like, here's a bunch of them all the time yeah. for two hours, yeah. you know, whereas like in the first one, it was more about invoking a reaction out of you, the audience putting, making you afraid, making you feel certain things. The second one is, is an action movie. Um, and it totally shifts, you know, what the focus is and, and what the, the plot is actually even about. Yeah. And they're both very effective for doing what they set out to do. Exactly. Definitely don't want to hate on aliens. We've done an episode on aliens. We love aliens. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is a different movie. It's definitely different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that comparison. That's that's really good. Uh -huh. um, well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a lot of fun. Um, and I, I hope that you come back and we talk about some more great films and pick these pick these awesome films I haven't even seen yet. Yeah, so, like very fun. If if even if you're the only person that watches this movie because we did this episode, I think then <laughs> I've achieved my goal because so few people have seen this movie. And I mean, I don't want to like get into talk about other films too much because I know we're winding down, but like Nosferatu is a film in this same like idea. It's a silent film about vampires right. from that age. And I feel like Nosferatu almost has this cult following around it where I feel it like does. this movie should have that as well because it's every bit as good, if not better, than Nosferatu. Right. I think there's that iconic imagery with Nosferatu that I guess that's why it gets more attention. But yeah, you want to really impress some film buffs, tell me you saw this <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> over Nosferatu. But yeah, no, I think um, I agree with you. And you, you've probably noticed we've done quite a few episodes on older films and we've even done a few on silent films. And I think that they're so underrated in this modern age. Like I, I really think that people resist them just because we live in this era of like always looking at our phones. We're always distracted by all these screens. It's hard to set aside the time to just like really turn your phone off and plug in and watch it. But if you do, I promise it's rewarding and you absolutely should because there's some great stuff out there that you're missing if you don't. Yeah, I um, I just real quick, I, I'll tell this uh, for our our foreign film series in my that I run. Um, I wanted to let the just like you let your guests pick the movie. I kind of wanted to let the audience have a say in picking the movies. And so we had this idea of doing themes like every every season would have a theme. So like throughout the fall, every movie yeah. we showed had the same theme. 
And we tried to let like the audience pick the themes. And so we put out a survey and said, okay, of these themes, what would you be interested in seeing? And one of the themes was silent films and it got zero votes, which yep. broke I mean, my heart. I'm not shocked to hear that. It kind of I think broke the my key heart. though is, is yeah, that's, that's disheartening. But I think the key is what you're doing by gathering people and having them watch it together and talking about it. I think you can change hearts and minds that way. Because I know for me personally, seeing some of these movies in theaters, it really changes the vibe. And if um, I had a really great guest on uh, earlier this year, last year, Ben Modell, who does uh, like a weekly, um, he shows silent shorts, comedies, but he is a silent film accompanist. And so he will project them on screen and then he's playing piano in real time. That's cool. Um, I think I listened to that episode. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And so typically he would be doing that in person, but now you can actually watch his YouTube show um, and he does it every week. But, you know, he said, and I agree because I have seen live scored silent films. It really changes how you view them because it's like, it's like a concert, you know, it's the movie plus the music. So I would say that's another way to get people really interested is if you can find somebody to play live or, you know, something like that. It, it kind of helps people put them in the right headspace for some of those films. No, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. And it's not something I thought about until I saw that. And then I, I also saw Metropolis uh, at the Texas Theater here in Dallas. They had some, um, a modern artist come in from Austin and he played like the theremin to like Metropolis. And it was so cool because it was like this really like new wave sounding music, but with Metropolis. Like, I don't know, it was just neat. And it just kind of gets like young people in the door to like see something that maybe they wouldn't have seen otherwise. You know, yeah. I felt like a lot of them were there to actually see him and not the movie, but they probably walked away big fans of the movie too. That's cool. Um, uh, but yeah. yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, and I hope to have you back and yeah, this was, this was fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>